When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. She's a fashion blogger, model, and entrepreneur. She's amazing. The latest tips on fashion, beauty, wellness, travel, and her lifestyle. And now, here's the founder and creator of Not Basic Blonde, Olasha. Hello loves, welcome back to another episode of Not Basic Blonde podcast. This episode is very interesting yet fascinating. My guest and I will be discussing childhood trauma, how to heal childhood trauma, relationships, how to attract the right partner. Also, we'll be discussing mental health and so much more. So my guest today is Tana Ammon. She is New York Times bestselling author, vice president of the Ammon Clinic's neurosurgical ICU trauma nurse and the world-renowned health and fitness expert. She has won the hearts of millions with her simple yet effective strategies to help anyone optimize their lifestyle and win the fight for a strong body, mind, and spirit. Also, Tana and her husband, Dr. Daniel Ammon, have four children and five grandchildren. Her latest book, The Relentless Courage of a Scared Child, How Persistent Grit and Faith Created a Reluctant Healer, will be released nationwide on January 5th, 2021. But before we dive in, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Not Basic Blonde podcast on Apple Podcasts. Hi, Tana. How are you today? Oh, I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Ilya. Oh, thank you so much for being my guest. It's my pleasure. Excellent. Yeah, and you have such an amazing background. We would love to learn more about you, especially you're one accomplished woman, one vice president of Ammon Clinics, a neurosurgical ICU trauma nurse, a world-renowned health and fitness expert, and last but not least, New York Times bestselling author. We would love to know more about you. 
Oh, thank you so much. So I worked for a long time in the hospital. And then when I met my husband, I went to work in our clinics doing sort of the lifestyle stuff. My husband is Dr. Daniel Amen, and we have um, mental health clinics around the country. And so I started writing about the effects of your lifestyle choices on mental health. And when I originally went down that road, it wasn't so much to write books about it. It was for my own benefit. Um, it was to heal myself because I had been sick as really sick as a young kid. And um, then I got cancer when I was 23. And so it was really more to, to heal myself. But eventually I realized it was so beneficial to me. And my husband said, you know, we really need to be teaching this to our patients. And that's really how my career in that field got started. It was more organic than anything else. I see. Yeah. So it's been really fun doing that. Why a memoir and why now? Yeah, that was really different. <laughs> so I've written 10 books and most of them are lifestyle. Well, they're all lifestyle related except for the memoir. And, you know, I, I sort of felt like I was being called, if you will. You know, I feel like we all have a purpose in life and we feel that calling. We feel ourselves being nudged toward that, towards that calling. And I um, avoided it for a long time because I just didn't want to be that vulnerable. My past was, well, let's just say it was very challenging. Um, and I didn't want to do it. And then finally, I, I had this woman approach me. Um, we were at an event and she approached me and she said, you know, I was hoping you'd be here. I've been following everything you do. And I, and then she starts crying and she was from, she was from somewhere in Africa. I think she was from Nigeria. And she said, I've been following you. And she said, I've been praying that God would do for my life, what he's done for yours. If you can do it, I can do it. And I realized in that moment, I haven't really told people the most challenging things about my life. And that if, you know, really, if there's one person who could benefit from it, that it's worth being vulnerable. And it, but it's tricky because when you write lifestyle books and recipes and, you know, exercise tips and people don't like it, okay, well, so what? But when you write about the, the hardest things in your life, if people criticize that, that's a lot harder. You know, that can be painful. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm struggling with that myself because I'm writing book as well. That's a big secret revealed right now. I never told anyone that oh, I'm wow. doing this. Congratulations. <laughs> and I have some moments that are actually like hurtful moments, but I don't know if I should actually share it or not. So I'm kind of in between. I feel like you have to be brave enough and don't really care what others think because you're putting yourself out there and sharing your life. And I don't think people should even judge because... It takes courage to do that. It really does. If I could give you any advice, I mean, I, I, I follow you on, you know, Instagram and I mean, you are stunning. You're this beautiful woman. And when I, you know, this happened to me when I was younger, I was, I used to, you know, I'm a public speaker and I'm an author and I was up on stage one day and I'm giving, you know, nutrition advice. I'm doing a nutrition seminar. And this woman in the front row raises her hand and she looks at me and she says, what would you know about my life? How are you going to teach me anything? Look at you. Your life is perfect. And I realized in that moment, oh, wow, um, they don't know anything about me. And because of that, they're blocking me out. So if I could give you any advice, you know, you are so beautiful. The average woman is going to have a hard time relating to, to, to ever being anything like you. And so the more, the more honest you are, and that was really hard for me at first too. It was really hard because you're, it's just very raw, but I found that like, I did it little by little at first. And then I discovered that the more vulnerable I was, the more people actually drew closer to me. It wasn't the other way around. Even some of the, the ickiest stuff, 
the, the, the ugliest stuff, the most painful stuff, that was the stuff that they related to because that's most people's lives. Yeah, actually, that's a great advice. You know, you said that um, you think I'm kind of like beautiful and all that and average woman is having a hard time relating to me, but no one knows how much work I put into it every day and how hard I am on myself because I don't like imperfections. That's why I don't really, I don't show myself from that side because not like I'm afraid to be judged, but it's just, I don't like to see it myself as well. <laughs> oh, I understand that. I so understand that. You know, I suffered secretly with an eating disorder for a long time. And I never ever, t- like I never told anyone publicly um, cause it was many, many years ago. But when I was 23, I actually tested and was accepted by Playboy. And so I had, well, let's just put it this way. It was in my head, but for me, I thought that my value was completely centered around my appearance. And that's because that was where I got my validation. That's what people noticed me for. So I had, even though it was attention I didn't like growing up, I was, you know, when I was really young, it was uncomfortable, but I started to realize, oh, this is what people expect of me. And so I started to just think that was the expectation and I fell into that trap. And so when that happened, I was accepted by Playboy. And then I found out a couple of weeks later that I had cancer and it was this crazy roller coaster time in my life. Everything fell apart. I lost the Playboy deal, obviously, to take care of my health. Um, but I had to quit my job, drop out of school. I ended up filing for bankruptcy and fell into this wicked depression. But a big part of it was because I felt like I lost the one thing that I was valued for. And so I understand what you're saying. And I, and now fast forward, it was years later, I was at a Byron Katie event and I'm sitting in the front row and I hear this, like she asked this one question, what do you hate about your body? Now you think it's a pretty simple question, but all of a sudden, like women just kind of went crazy. And I hear this woman, so I'm like, all right, I'm not talking in front of a group. I'm just not gonna do it this way before I did any public speaking. And this woman stands up and she's way behind me. She's several rows back. And I could hear by her voice that she was a lot older than I was. And I turned around and she was much, much heavier than I was. I mean, she weighed a couple hundred pounds. And what blew my mind though, was that her list was identical to mine. Her list of what she hated about her body was literally identical to mine. I'm standing there in a size zero jean, you know, jeans and, you know, I'm made up completely, even though I'm at this event where nobody is made up because that's just how I was and totally focused on my appearance and thinking that that's what I'm valued for. But every woman in there had the same list of what they hated about their bodies. And I realized in that moment, it really has so little to do with how we look. It has to do with how we think. And it was just very eye-opening. It does. Not right now. It's very liberal. Like right now, everyone does whatever they want. But, you know, I grew up in Russia and there you will not go take a trash out outside if you don't have makeup on. Right. <laughs> I didn't go to those extremes. My mom, she never would leave a house without makeup. I mean, I'm fine. Like I totally don't even wear makeup sometimes on a regular basis, but still, you know, the standards were different when I was growing up. Now, of course, I'm, plus I spent many years in modeling too, and standards were totally different than now. Like right. there no plus size models at that time, but right. now it's different. And now I way more kind of liberated and way more flexible, kind of like don't care as much, but 
it used to be hard and I used to not understand how people don't take care of themselves and how they let themselves to walk around like you know some people walk around no and we typically judge other people much less harshly than we are judging ourselves so if you're thinking that way about other people that tells I mean most likely you're judging yourself very harshly yeah like your standards for your intense i do i mean i lowered my standards now but before they were very very high (laughs) yeah yeah well i i actually applaud you for making yourself vulnerable and writing a book um you know i think you'll be surprised at how many women will relate to you as opposed to judging you you know just just for being willing to be vulnerable i was surprised about it myself so when I wrote my book, I was just, I was really um, very surprised as I started to release little bits of it on social media. I was expecting, I mean, I was bracing myself, expecting this huge backlash, but that didn't happen. What happened was they were relating to the trauma from the past. Yeah. What was the most challenging part for you as far as writing or releasing? So, I mean, the obvious part, I mean, it's called the relentless courage of a scared child. So then the title alone, tell a little bit about the content. It's, it's about overcoming childhood trauma, anxiety, depression, based on growing up in a very chaotic life. So writing some of those stories, having, I've done therapy, I've done my work, but going back and revisiting it, you know, there's a saying that I love. It's like, you know, just because you survive Auschwitz doesn't, you know, you survive the Holocaust doesn't mean you want to go back to Auschwitz for a camping trip. Right. So, so people who survive trauma don't necessarily want to go back and revisit it. And so based on that, um, going back and having to dig deep was hard, but I also found it to be fairly liberating because things that we experience as a child, if we don't go back and revisit it as an adult, that memory tends to get stuck from a child's perspective. And when we don't revisit it from an adult's perspective, you know, children don't have the same resources. They don't have the same mental resources. So having to go back and do that was hard, but now I have had the opportunity to see it from an adult's perspective and process it from an adult's perspective. And that was good. So that was the good part. The other part I would say that's really hard. And I don't know what your, I don't know what your book, but I will tell you this, if it's a memoir, brace yourself because in my life, most, most of the people in my book are still alive. (laughs) So they weren't necessarily super excited about me writing certain things. And what I found fascinating was that the people who were the least excited about me writing things were the people who didn't have anything really negative in the book. It was nothing, they weren't, it wasn't a big deal, but because they didn't want, you know, anything about themselves written, it was challenging for me to do that. So some of the people who had the worst stories were okay with it because they've already done, you know, their work around that and they've owned it. But it's challenging when you're writing a memoir and people are alive. <laughs> so yeah, it is like you have to substitute names and did you substitute? Oh yeah, <laughs> I did, but some of them I couldn't because it's like my mother and my uncles and I had an uncle who was murdered in a drug deal, you know, gone wrong. And my other it was because of my other uncle who was a heroin addict. And so that hair, my other uncle who's a heroin addict is still alive. And so, but he was actually amazing, but I've also got a lot of addiction and uh, mental illness in my family. And so writing about some of those, so scenarios, it's easy to figure out who the people are and it was challenging. I had to go through therapy in my late twenties and pull up all, they say childhood drama. I didn't really have it. I wouldn't say I had it like tragedy or something no but still like some moments I guess when we're a child you don't take it correctly and I guess you it affects you a little bit later 
but if you go through therapy and you actually work out those moments then it's you actually get healed right right exactly because you processed it as a child now you're processing it as an adult so you're not allowing it to get stuck there yeah yeah absolutely and in introduction you write that this is not a religious book but then you add that spiritual beliefs are a vital part of your story how did faith and spirituality play into healing from your trauma um so it's interesting it was really tricky for me my dad was a baptist minister but my dad was not part of my life he abandoned me when i was young and we were not close and so and he was a drug addict <laughs> he was he did drugs when i was really young and so we were not close and then he shows up one day and he's a baptist minister so we and then he embezzled money from the church so as you might imagine my views of church growing up weren't great uh, my views of god were not great they were pretty rocky but then i you know i i hit rock bottom in my own life i mean my depression was so bad and i just had i had gotten so low and in so many areas of my life. And I, fortunately for me, I, it was this, there was a time in my life where I finally had this revelation. It's like, I needed a spiritual walk because I discovered that not, not having a spiritual connection meant that for me, I didn't have purpose. I felt just completely empty. And I, when I had this revelation that my dad's not God, why am I allowing my dad to define any type of spirituality in my life? That, that revelation really freed me to then figure out what it meant to me. What did my spiritual walk mean to me? And so what I've discovered since then is, you know, I I realize people listening to this are probably from all over the place and they have all different religious beliefs, spiritual beliefs, you know, anti-religious beliefs. I understand that. But what I really, um, what we understand at our clinics, at Amen Clinics, we treat people according to four circles, biological, psychological, social, and spiritual. And the reason we include the spiritual circle is because not because we are trying to convince people to be religious. It's because you need purpose in your life. People who are purposeful, who are connected somehow to something bigger than themselves live longer and they are happier. And that's not me saying that that's the science saying that, believe it or not. And so it's a really important thing. And that's why I included that in in the book. My spiritual journey was a vital part of me healing. Yeah, I think it's very important too. And I went through spiritual awakening and spiritual journey, but I mean, I believed in God since I was a child, but then still there's different point of view from as far as spirituality in here too. Like, you know, you have meditation and everything else, like this kind of things help people in healing too. And we didn't experience those. We just, you know, just did typical prayer, but actually like I have learned another, another side of like spirituality as well later on in life, close to like my thirties. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I consider prayer and meditation a vital part of just my daily routine, um, for mental clarity, for peace of mind, for, for especially going through these, you know, we're in unprecedented times right now. So these times that we're in, we've seen depression more than triple anxiety is through the roof. Teen suicide is way up. And that's one of the reasons we talk to people about believing in something bigger than themselves, but also having mental discipline, like what you just talked about. Prayer and meditation are critical and they're not all that different. The studies show, the science shows, they actually have a very similar effect on the brain for settling down the emotional centers and activating the frontal lobes, which is the thoughtful part of the brain. That's the judgment part of the brain, controls impulse control. 
And so, you know, I think of prayer as talking to God and meditation as listening to God. So however it is you want to think about it, it, it really does change the way your brain functions. And that's, that's a reason to do it right there. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't know that it does kind of the same effect, but I learned meditation later, but prayer, it was there for me all the time, but I'm glad I know it now. Yeah. Yeah. And you write that it's possible to overcome childhood trauma, but it's not easy task. What encouraged you to work through the pain to find healing? Uh, well, for me, I, my life became a train wreck. That's <laughs> there was a point where it was just so bad that, that I felt like I didn't have a lot of choice to be quite honest, but I still, you know, I, I got really good at putting a facade on. I was one of those women who the more I accomplished, I started trying to just accomplish more. I suffered with an eating disorder silently because of this control issue I had in life. It's like everything needed to be perfect. And so, and I didn't, I mean, I couldn't even say the words. I couldn't say the words that I had been molested. I couldn't say the words, you know, that I had an eating disorder. It's like, it needed to be perfect. So I'd spend hours putting on makeup and having the perfect clothes. And it's like, if, as long as I, I thought as long as I could look perfect enough on the outside, no one would really notice the flaws on the inside. Of course, that's not true. People can sense that you're broken from a mile away, but, but I figured they wouldn't really notice it. And I sort of got by with that because I would accomplish, I would, I would like, base my value on accomplishments. So, and I was very accomplished. I did, I graduated top of my class in school. I owned my own home. I had no bills. You know, I was like making money, but I was still broken inside. And it was when I had my daughter that I, I just, I looked at her and I went, oh my God, I'm going to repeat the same cycle as my broken family. I'm going to repeat the same environment. I'm going to create the same environment for her that I was raised in that I just hated. And I just wasn't willing to do it. And it was in that moment that I just, I knew I had to change something and it was painful and it was scary. And it was, you know, I, I had a really hard time opening up at first, but it was so worth it. Wow. But what words of wisdom can you offer to people who are seeking healing from a toxic childhood? Well, one thing is what I just said, it's completely worth getting healing. But one thing I, I always tell people, because there was a point in my life during when I was 23, um, when I lost the playboy deal, felt like my physical appearance, you know, the thing that I valued most and thought I was valued for, um, was, was tarnished in my mind. And I, you know, quit my job. Like I, I said earlier, um, dropped out of school, felt like I literally had lost everything. My mom had brain surgery at the same time that I was going through radiation treatments. And I just felt like there was no purpose for my life. And I know there's a lot of people listening right now that have that same thought. And I know that for a fact, because I read my own questions on social media. I read the comments that people leave. And there are just so many people out there right now who feel broken and lost and purposeless. And I just want to say to those people that are listening right now, especially in these crazy times, you have no idea how your tragedy today, how your trials today, how your pain from right now could be someone's, someone else's guidebook tomorrow for how to change their life. I have no idea that all of that stuff, I used to literally pray that God would just let me. I couldn't really kill myself. I just couldn't bring myself to do it, but I would pray every day that something would happen and it wouldn't be my fault. Like a truck would hit me or something like that. And because I was just wasting oxygen and I, there's no way I could have known that all of those things I was going through, that pain, that trauma, that depression would be the thing that I would 
that would become my platform today to help people. That would be my purpose. So it's pain to purpose. Yeah. You just don't know what, you know, what tomorrow's going to bring for you. So just hang in there. Yeah. And sometimes when I ha- I'm going through something really hard in those moments, I think that there are some people that are even going through even harder times. Yeah. I'm just trying to find things that I can be grateful for at that moment. So I can kind of lift myself up. So you just touched on some, another important thing. Gratitude, just like prayer and meditation changes your brain chemistry. So does gratitude. So if you look at a, the brain scans, cause that's what we do at Amen clinics is brain scans. And if you look at brain scans of people who are focused, we we've done them. We've actually done this. So just like we did studies, we actually published studies on prayer and, and meditation. We've also published studies on gratitude. So when someone is focused on something they hate, their brain, their frontal lobes drop. That part of the brain that is the most human thoughtful part of your brain that's responsible for judgment and impulse control, that drops when you're focused on something negative. When you're focused on gratitude, what you love in life, all of a sudden that part lights up, that part blood flow increases to that part of your brain. It's very interesting. Yeah. I knew about gratitude transformation because there is always studies and suggestions for people to transform your life that you journal every day for five things you're grateful for. And that's how you start your day with. And after a few days, your life gets transformed. I've heard about that, but now I'm glad you mentioned the actual scientific, like the science behind it. Yep. And and it also helps to heal your body because it helps to lower stress hormones. Oh, I see. That's interesting. Is there a specific correlation between mental health and exercise and How have you seen daily exercise help you in healing journey and those of your patients? Well, yes. And so for for sure, there is a correlation between, you know, food, exercise and mental health, but you can also overdo it just like anything else. When I was, when I had an eating disorder, um, I developed it as a teenager, just this sort of anxiety control, this, you know, um, this perfection, this, this way to control my life. I knew I couldn't maintain that because I I discovered that it was so unhealthy for me. So I transferred that purging into extreme exercise and I would exercise for hours every day. That's not healthy. So let me be very clear. (laughs) More is not better when it comes to that. You want to be exercising in a way that, that is loving and kind and beneficial to your body. That is definitely helpful to your mental health. Because exercise is one of the few things that improves all of the neurotransmitters, the good neurotransmitters in your brain. It improves the endorphins, which make you feel good. It improves dopamine, which which increases motivation. It improves serotonin, which is the neurotransmitter that helps you to relax, be happy, don't worry. So it actually improves all of those. And there are multiple studies that show that exercise goes head to head with antidepressants as far as being able to improve mood and depression. So for sure, but you don't want to be overdoing it. If you are using exercise as a way to purge, I would strongly recommend you get help for that because that's not healthy. And you're going to break your body down for sure. I used to be crazy about exercise. I worked out a lot and now I'm so sick of it. Like I have to make myself (laughs) to work out. (laughs) Well, now you do it for, now you do it because you know, it's good for you, right? Now you do it because you have to, and you know, it's good for you. Um, When I was eight, you know, I think a lot of us go through that. Yeah, when I was 18, I was on crazy diets. I was exercising like every day, an hour. (laughs) And part of that is, you know, part of that is society. Part of that is the pressure that we feel, you know? And for me, a part of it was, it it really is good for anxiety. I I used it as medicine. 
And how much is not too much? Like three to five times a week or how much is like exercise? Oh, no, you can actually exercise. You, you can actually exercise up to seven days a week. It's, it's what you're doing. So you could do interval training four or five days a week as long as you're not going over an hour and you can also, then you can do the other days. Let's just say you go for a hike in nature or you go for a walk on the beach, as long as you're not doing seven days of super intense exercise. So make, you know, at least one or two of those days, something very passive. So your body can recover. Oh, I see. You share in the book that finding love with you now husband helped you love yourself again. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, it was interesting. I had, um, as part of that whole process of just sort of blocking people out, I, I really had, <laughs> my husband would say I tortured him. I actually just, it's not that I was trying to torture him. I kept breaking up with him because he wanted to get married. And I just, I couldn't imagine myself being not only being that vulnerable with someone, but I didn't trust myself. So why would I trust him? Um, but he was, you know, he's different. Obviously he's a psychiatrist. I almost, <laughs> I almost canceled my first date with him when I found out he's a psychiatrist. Cause I'm like, I do not want to be psychoanalyzed, but he's very special person. And, you know, because he's, he's just, he's very unique and he's very, um, psychologically savvy, but he's also just a good human, but he created very much a safe space and he just wouldn't, he wouldn't let go. So he was willing to not like he stalked me. Don't, don't get me wrong, but he, um, he, he was willing to just be my friend, if nothing else. And he wouldn't, he, he just had faith in me. And so he created this safe space that sort of allowed me to then be, to be myself and really open up and heal. It was through that safety. It was through that love and that safety. And I realized at some point, I'm like, wow, this guy, this guy is, he really is who he says he is. I had kept waiting for the other shoe to fall. Like I couldn't trust men, but I kept, you know, testing him and trying him and, and waiting for that shoe to fall, but it just never did. He was just this really good person who allowed me that space to just heal as I needed to. That's amazing because, you know, I heard stories from our girlfriends and others who dated doctors that some of them actually used their powers as far as like knowing psychology so well to manipulate girls and like, you know, yeah, I think that there, you have to have, you know, and that's, that's the thing is I was a neurosurgical ICU nurse. And so I knew a lot of neurosurgeons and cardiothoracic surgeons in the hospital. And there's a saying, you know, the only difference between God and a neurosurgeon is that God knows he's not a neurosurgeon. So, um, so I was kind of used to that sort of, you know, those personalities, those very big personalities. And, and so that's why when I met my husband, I was sort of on the lookout for that. So I do understand what you're saying, but there, one thing that a friend of mine told me, and I will never forget this. I actually write about it in the book. I was like, I was complaining. I'm like, there are just no good men in the world. Like men are just jerks. And she looked at me and she said, you know, your problem isn't the men you meet. It's the ones you give your phone number to. And I was like, whoa, ouch. <laughs> so it's, it's not that there aren't good men in the world. It's that my radar was set to find the ones that weren't good men. The we attract sometimes, and is there any psychological like how do we attract our par partners based on what things I know there are different criteria we attract them, but there is like some not even conscious level on the subconscious level somewhere we attract them, right? Well, sure. I mean, for some people, I mean, there's there's also values involved. Like a part of it is some, some for some women, appearance is a big deal, and for other women, it's not. So for me, that is just not the most important thing, but for some women, it's hugely important. So that's part of it. But as far as characteristics, like their personality and character traits, you know, I am of a huge belief that 
we attract people based on, you know, there's a, a saying water seeks its own level. So we have this idea of what we want, but if you aren't that already, how are you going to attract it? So I'll see women say, oh, I want this. You know, I, I, they'll describe the perfect man. They're basically describing like Prince Charming. They'll describe the perfect person, but they haven't done work on themselves. And so, you know, one thing when I'm coaching women, I'll often say is, so now I don't mean this to be insulting, but tell me why that person that you just described would be attracted to you. I'm actually being serious. Would he be attracted to you? And nine times out of 10, those women will go, oh my God, no, he wouldn't be attracted to me. And I'm like, all right, well, don't be upset by that. I want you to actually stop now and tell me why he wouldn't be attracted to you. Because if you just described the perfect person for you that you want, but he's not going to be attracted to you, write down all the things he wouldn't be attracted to. And that's your work list. That's, that is your, your task list. That's what you can start working on because you clearly want to be different. So you can attract that person. Oh, I see. That's how it works. That's so true because sometimes we haven't done work on ourselves and then we try to attract somebody. Yeah. It's a fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I think, I mean, I think about my past or whatever, <laughs> those people that I attracted before, what was I thinking at that time? Oh yeah. I think we all have a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> We've all got a few of those. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's what our 20s were for, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> You're so brave to share your story and all the ups and downs. And if one word that keeps you surfacing is resilience, why is this such an important quality to have? And how does it heal and cultivate this? Resilience is, is such an important trait. And I never would have thought of myself as resilient when I was younger, but honestly, all of the times that I felt broken and then sort of came back and then felt broken and came back, that is resilience in a nutshell. Um, and so that's why I wanted to write about it because I wanted people to understand that it's in your most broken times. When you come back from that, that's resilience. It's building resilience. So there are a lot of people who feel like resilience is either, either you're born with it or you're not. So I've got family members who are not resilient. They went through trauma. They never, they never bounced back from it. Their lives are just ruined. And do I think they could? I still think they could, but they have to think they could, right? They have to think they can do it. Um, and so some people think that resilience, you're either born with it or you're not. Um, I'm not sure I believe that. You know, I don't know about if you're born an oak or a willow. I actually think you can develop resilience, but I do think it takes effort. If you don't have it naturally, my mom is one of the toughest people I know. She was a 16 year old runaway. She lived on the streets, didn't finish high school. And that's part of why, obviously, some of the challenges in our lives were because of that. But she's so tough and she has so much grit. And eventually her grit became my grit. I mean, I just, you know, she never took no for an answer. But at the same time, I still think that if you didn't have that, you can develop it. But I think you need to first become aware. You need to become aware that you're not that. And you have to make a conscious choice to begin to develop resilience. And I think the first step in that is healing some of the trauma from the past. Yeah, I think so too. It's very important to develop resilience, especially when you go through tough times. Some people just give up and don't try anymore, but some people just give, get up and keep going again or start yeah. over. Yeah, I practice martial arts. I love martial arts for women. Um, I was actually attacked when I was 15, walking to high school, drugged down an alley. It was crazy. So I'm a huge advocate of um, martial arts and being able to protect yourself. And one of the things that I learned, and I love this, um, so many levels, when I went in, my master, you know, I wanted to learn how to fight. I want to learn how to hit stuff. 
And, you know, I thought I want to learn how to just be really tough. And he said, okay, well, today you're going to pad up and we're going to learn how to fall safely and get up quickly. And I'm like, what? I don't want to learn how to fall. I want to learn how to not fall. And he was like, no, that's not part of the deal. Part of the deal is learning. You're going to fall. It's normal. It's a normal part of, of fighting is you have to be able to fall safely and not get hurt and get up fast. And as long as you always get up, you haven't failed. You haven't lost. And it was just such a light switch moment because I was like, wait a second, as long as I always get up, I haven't failed. It's just another way of learning to do something. So falling isn't failing, right? Why didn't someone teach me that when I was like, you know, 15? So (laughs) I wish I had known that. So there's no such thing as perfectionism. And it really shattered my idea of perfectionism. When I started practicing martial arts, I realized, you know, you can't have this idea of perfectionism in martial arts. You have to learn how to take a hit. You have to learn how to fall and you got to learn how to get up safely or you're going to get killed. (laughs) So, so it was really important lesson for me. Oh, that's very interesting how you're saying about falling. And it's, it's just like fascinating because you never, I mean, I never thought about it like that. No. Right. How many girls are taught that we're taught to be perfect. We're taught, or, you know, as perfect as we can, we're taught to be polite. We're taught to, you know, put on a, a happy face and it's like, no, that's, there's no such thing as failing as long as we just keep getting up. Yeah, that's so true. And as far as 2020 being challenging year for all of us, what do you think, what are some daily habits to keep us physically and mentally strong in 2021? So we just touched on a couple of them, prayer and meditation, obviously, um, exercise, even, you know, people, even when we were locked in our houses, it's so funny. I had to go outside of my room just before I came on with you my husband is doing laps around our house while he's on a meeting. And I'm like, you need to stop walking in front of the door. Cause I have this podcast I'm doing. So he, he, you know, even when the weather's terrible, he's doing laps around our house. Um, if it's, the weather's nice, he goes outside, takes the dog for a walk while he's doing his meetings. So make sure you're moving your body, um, prayer, meditation, eating healthy. It was really hard for people when they were stuck inside, but when people don't eat healthy, so at least relatively healthy, I, we get it. You're going to you know, have some slip ups. Don't beat yourself up for it. But when you just let it go, food actually does affect mood more than people realize. Everything you put on the end of your fork matters. Just like exercise affects your neurotransmitters, so does food. And I write a lot about that in my other books. And so that's really important. But if I could pinpoint one thing that is vital in this house, it's turning off the news. I just can't listen to the news. Within five minutes, I'm angry. I, I felt like I'm getting panic attacks because as soon as I listen to news and then I go to bed, like yeah. I listen to news before I go to bed and then I can't sleep. So yeah, exactly. I learned it hard way. <laughs> and it doesn't matter. Everything's become political and it doesn't matter which side you're on. You have to understand how the news is designed, not your political beliefs, the news. The news is designed to keep you hooked, to make you angry. Because if they do, that's how they get sponsors. They're not not there to just deliver headlines and news and just keep it clean. They need to make you angry so you keep watching. (laughs) So if you just understand that one thing, you'll be less, you know, addicted to it. Yeah, so true. And it's like, it's just the media bringing us information that can take different sides. Who is this book for? And what do you hope readers take away from your memoir? So when I wrote this, um, I I made a clear decision before I wrote it that I was either going to find a way to put the life lessons I had learned in and make it a book of hope 
or I wasn't gonna write it. I don't need more voyeurs into our, my life, right? We've got enough of those because of our clinics and our we have a pretty big platform. And so I don't need that. Um, but what I was hoping for is that I wanted to leave a message of hope for people, of really that resilience of turning pain to purpose. So those lessons are sort of buried in there. Um, so anyone who's looking for inspiration and hope, who's feeling really low right now, who has had a childhood or a life with a lot of trauma, um, that they're feeling stuck, like they aren't sure if they can overcome that, I promise you, you can. And so that's really who this is written for. Also, for people who maybe they've come through some of it on their own, like I did, I disconnected from all of my family. It's like, okay, fine. I finally, you know, did my work, but I, the only way I can protect myself is to disconnect from the rest of my family. Cause it was like Jerry Springer material. I'm like, I just can't do this anymore. So I disconnected from everybody. Um, but then you're sometimes called back and you know that there's no way around it. Like my nieces were taken into foster care and you know, if you don't get involved, then there's nothing, you know, nothing's going to happen. And, and you you feel this obligation. So for people like that, that are that feel like they don't want to get involved, but they know they have to, that there's a big internal struggle with that. And so for those people, there's also a big lesson in here. And, and that was a, that was a huge struggle for me. And so I talk a lot about how I dealt with that. I see. So there's, you know, mostly a message of hope. Yeah. One thing I learned is that so often I have felt like, you know, I avoided doing something and then I, I kind of felt God nudging me and I'm like, I don't want to do this. And I kept arguing with God. And, and then all of a sudden I, I ended up doing it because it sort of was in my face. And after I did it, I realized, oh, wow. Okay. I was being asked to help these people. The help was for them, but it was so that I could heal. So the help was for them, but the healing was for me. And I, and I think that's a big point in my book is that sometimes you're being asked to help people so that you can heal a part of yourself that's broken. Yeah, I always look at it this way too, because sometimes when circumstances change and you are asked for help, like you said, and then I actually find something that benefited me in this situation. So, right, exactly. Yeah. And at your clinics, what do you help patients? Like, what are the most issues you help patients with? Oh, dear. Um, so it's, it's fairly diverse, but, um, so people struggling with memory is a big part of it, but right now, depression, anxiety, um, suicidal ideation, um, we're really seeing a lot of that because of what's going on right now. And then we also see people, a lot of people with ADD and head injuries. So, I mean, it's kind of across the board. We have addiction specialists. So we've got, um, I think 35 doctors, maybe up to 40 now. We had to open a couple new clinics because of just how busy it was during this crazy time. Um, but we've got addiction specialists. We have child psychiatrists. We've got people who specialize in different types of trauma and then also Alzheimer's and things like that. So we, we see different things, but right now things are, are really focused on depression, anxiety, and trauma. I see. And what is your favorite quote that you live by? I love quotes. So there's, there's quite a few, but I think one of my favorites is because I'm a martial artist. Uh, so I tend to like warrior quotes. But a, there's a student who says to his master, master, you speak of peace, yet you teach me to fight. Why? And the master replies, because it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. I love that quote. That's very interesting. Yeah, I love it too. So just be prepared. You can have the skill. But if you practice martial arts, you learn that having skill is mostly so you can avoid the fight. Yeah, I agree. And where can all listeners find you where they can grab a copy of your book? So right now it's for pre-order until um, it comes out January 5th. 
um, but at relentlesscourage.com, you can pre-order it. And I've got about almost $500 worth of gifts and um, to really help people on their own journey of self-discovery, help them journal their own story. And there's a course in there. It's really great. And um, so it's really available at almost anywhere where, you know, great books are sold, Amazon, um, but the gifts are at relentlesscourage.com and it comes out January 5th. So it's the relentless courage of a scared child. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Tana Amen. Great. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Oh, thank you. It was great. That was all for today, guys. I hope you really enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Not Basic Blonde podcast is available on all the major platforms with new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. To support the show, tag NBB Podcast on your Instagram stories and check out more behind the scenes on Instagram as well at notbasicblonde underscore or NBB Podcast. And if you haven't, subscribe, rate, and review Not Basic Blonde Podcast on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.